I think we can get started. This is, uh, um, yeah, thank you all for coming and for being here, and we're really excited um, about this event and this podcast recording. Um, and so what we're going to do is, and I'll do introductions, basically in terms of timing, we're going to go for about an hour with some questions. The Forbidden, I know we, I believe we have a mix of Polaris and Forbidden Courses students here. So the Forbidden Courses students, um, those who chose to, submitted questions in advance. Um, and so we're going to use that largely sort of a curated list of those questions um, and then also have time for additional Q&A. Um, so we'll go for about an hour, and then we'll do about a half an hour of Q&A, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so again, I just want to welcome everybody, and thank you for being here. And I want to welcome our guests. Thank you so much for being here. It's very exciting. Um, and so I want to I want to just say a, a minute, a, a short word about the Mill Institute. <laughs> So, and, I, and introduce, excuse me, and introduce myself. I'm Alana Redstone. Um, I'm the director of the Mill Institute at UATX. Um, and the Mill Institute, we work primarily with educators to open up conversations, to challenge settled thinking and open up conversations on contentious issues with students. Um, and so the Mill Institute, one, I guess this, this sort of Concise way to say that, the Mill Institute works in educational settings to explore and challenge the entrenched thinking that leads to a breakdown of conversation on contentious issues by convening and training educators, creating learning resources, and conducting research. We help students become less certain and more curious when it comes to the way they understand the world and one another. So that's what animates our work. Now I want to introduce our three amazing guests here. So we have Megan Daum, Nancy Rommelman, and Sarah Heppela, not in that order. Um, this is Megan Daum, Sarah Heppela, and Nancy Rommelman. So let me go in some order that makes sense. Um, Megan is the creator and host, Megan here, is the creator and host of the Unspeakable podcast and the author of six books, most recently The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, a New York Times notable book for 2019. She has written for numerous magazines, including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Vogue. Her latest projects include a new podcast, A Special Place in Hell, which she co-hosts with Sarah Hader, and a startup venture called The Unspeakeasy, which is a forum for free-thinking women that offers in-person retreats and a private online community. Sarah Heppola is the author of the best-selling memoir, Blackout, her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Salon, and Elle. She is the host and creator of the Texas Monthly Podcast on the Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders, America's Girls, and the co-conspirator of the weekly cultural podcast, Smoke 'em If You Got 'em, with our third guest, with Nancy. So Nancy Rommelman is a journalist at Reason, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Free Press. Excuse me, The Free Press. She is the co-host with Sarah Heppola of the Smoke 'em If You Got 'em podcast and writes the substack Make More Pie, which I love that name. Um, she is the author most recently of the book To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. That is an exciting title. Um, yeah, amazing. So thank you so much for being here, and I'm just grateful for the chance to talk with you all. Um, so where I think I want to start is that what the reason, what I think you all share in common is that you all, in your own work, you all 
and your writing, you sort of fearlessly touch issues that a lot of people won't go near. Um, and those could be issues around gender, around feminism, but not necessarily restricted to those topics. Um, and so I guess as a starting place, can you say a little bit about where that need or impulse comes from? So what is it that drives you in that work? Because it would be just as easy, if not probably easier, to be like, no thanks. Um, I can start with this one. Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having us, and thank you everyone for being here. The stories I've written way before we sort of entered the arena where you're not supposed to talk about certain things um, is stories that are being reported one way by the majority. And I see the story and I'm like, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't think the story is like that. And then I always want to go find out why I think that and what I think the story is. When you do this, you are sometimes told you're not supposed to do that. When I wrote a book about a mother who, you know, killed one of her children. It's like, well, why do we want to hear about her? Well, you know, for me, I thought there would be interesting things to learn there. We're now in a culture, and actually the reason um, Sarah and I met is because she was writing an article about all the things we're not supposed to write about. I just, I mean, we could stay up at night worrying about that. I just don't. You're going to write about what you think is interesting and provocative to you, and if people don't like it, that's fine, um, and, but it may unfold things for other people. I don't really even pay that much attention to the idea that we're not supposed to write about certain things. So I came into the writing profession in the 90s and the aughts, and I sort of specialized in personal writing. One of the things I noticed was that I was... For whatever reason, I didn't have as much embarrassment or shame around certain things as other people did. And there was a lot of collateral at the time in being able to say, you know, I have these bodily insecurities or I have this depression or whatever it is. Now you scroll the tape forward and like everybody on Facebook has that. But, you know, back in 20 years ago, there was still like, oh, okay, I, this was something that I could do. Uh, I felt like what I could do was to never lie to the reader and that I would broker trust. I worked at a place called Salon, um, which is, it was very echo chamber liberal in the, like, aughts, and something happened, <laughs> and, and you, and we all know, but it was around 2013 to 2015, all of a sudden, it was like, you can't say that, and... But my collateral had always been being willing to say things that other people wouldn't. But before, it just felt like, oh, well, you might lose personal esteem. But now it was some sort of prestige or status that you were a bad person. Where the, all of this really kind of conflicted for me was that I got sober in 2010. Um, and I started writing about my drinking life. And I was writing about my drinking life during the years that campus sexual assault and Me Too was kind of blowing up. And I thought that alcohol was integral to that conversation. And the feminist party line was, don't talk about that. That's not, we're not going to talk about alcohol. And, and I just didn't understand it. I was coming out of a world where alcohol was the red carpet to all these sexual engagements. How could you not talk about alcohol? So that was kind of where I first found myself what you might call like on the wrong side of the conversation. And I spent many years trying to hold on to this old world that I had where like, 
Like I could thread the needle enough to keep my friends at salon, but say enough that was interesting. And finally, I just sort of broke out of that. About two years ago, I wrote a story for The Atlantic called The Things I'm Afraid to Write About. That's how I met Nancy, that's when we started our podcast. Um, it was sort of my own like coming out of not being able to fit in that cage anymore. Yeah, so I would echo a lot of what um, you guys just said. So uh, I became a writer because I wanted to think about things in an unusual way. Like that's where the action was kind of intellectually. Writers were the people who were counterintuitive and actually whose job it was to look at a situation and say, okay, well, we, this is the main narrative. This is the conventional wisdom. What if we looked at it this other way? And um, everything was fine um, <laughs> for a couple decades uh, doing that. And I think like you, around, around 2013, 2014, I started noticing that a lot of just um, basic themes and points of agreement that I thought were just pretty much established, for instance, that um, women's equality had pretty much, um, <laughs> you know, was pretty well established that being a woman in 2013 was um, probably better than being a woman in 1963, let's just say, maybe a little bit. Um, and suddenly, like, those assumptions were not in place anymore. I had colleagues who we had very much been on the same page. We had grown up with the same, in the same era, the same kinds of experiences, same kind of education, and suddenly they were talking about how the world hates women, for instance, um, just to get up, get up in the morning and, you know, get dressed and walk down the street to your job uh, is being a badass because you were fighting the patriarchy uh, at every turn. And I just thought, this is really strange. This doesn't make any sense. And there was a kind of hypocrisy about it and there was a performativity about it. And so my instinct as a writer was to try to find my way through it by writing about it. And um, lo and behold, it was uh, not as well received in 2014 as it would have been in 2012 even. So here we are. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's fascinating. I mean, so one of the questions, so you, Sarah and Megan, you both talked about this change around 2013, and I just, I wanted to make sure, you're not talking about something specific at Salon that happened, you're talking about in the broader culture. I'm talking about, when I look back, it's like the years of, like, 2010 to 2015 feel like yeah. this slow push. And, I, and I've never been able to pin it down exactly. I mean, in my own world, what I was talking about, you know, 2010 was, or 2011, is when the Title IX um, Dear Colleague letter was sent out. And so that really radically changed the way um, sexual assault and sexual engagement happened on campus. So you started to see the creep of the, the consent debate, um, which then exploded by the time we get to 2014, 15. But right. yeah, I, I, I can't, like, to pin it on something, but anyway. Yeah, no, I think that, I think, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it is hard to pin down. Um, so I am going to, I have, I think everything you said is fascinating and I have follow-up questions, but I also want to make sure that we get to the amazing questions that the students sent in. So I'm going to just 
course, just set aside my own questions for now. Um, so the students, so let's just, I think the students sent in some fantastic questions, so I just want to dive in, and these are going to be in no particular order, um, so don't, please don't read anything intentional into the order. But one question is, how, uh, so the question is phrased as how has feminine, excuse me, how has feminism impacted the desire to raise children? Um, obviously, I guess there's an assumption in there that it has impacted that, but I assume that that's probably a safe assumption. So who wants to take that? Yeah, I'll dive in there. I mean, I think, look, I think modern life has affected the, the interest in raising children. I think that there's all sorts of vectors that are, that are pushing on that. But I think one of the interesting things, if you look back at now we're going back to the second wave feminism, which I'm talking about, like the 70s. You know, it's interesting because that was called the women's movement, but it was really a, a, a very small fraction of women. And there were a lot of women that felt left behind by that. You know, this idea that you need to push into the workplace. They sort of were fine raising their kids. And there was, a, there was tension within the women's movement, the feminist movement, um, whether or not the goal should be liberation from family or something like you know making men equal partners right and and i think how has feminism affected children one of the things that it's done i mean now we're talking about 50 years down the line is that there are a lot of women that feel a certain shame if they want to just raise children whereas for most of recorded history that was just what you did so you took something that went from what was supposed to be, or what had been, uh, your purpose and the center of your life, and you made it something that was potentially a sign that you weren't as ambitious. And I think that that has been a real conflict for a lot of people. I mean, the, the second book that I'm working on is about being, you know, in my 40s and never having had kids and having wanted them, you know, but it didn't work out. And people assume that I'm sort of childless, like defiantly child-free, and I'm not. I'm sort of accidentally childless. And that is going to start happening more and more because people push the, you know, the other thing that happens, is, and this isn't feminism, this is modern technology, this is uh, consumerism, this is you can do everything you want. You know, you don't have to choose. Don't make hard decisions. Why not do everything? Um, that's the consumer model of America, and it gets us into, all into a lot of trouble because you can't do everything. And certainly with children, that's a particularly sticky widget. Yeah, I will also say that the, the second wave feminism is... Do we, I, let's just... I can, oh. One of you want to take on, like, what is the... Just, I don't know if everyone... Maybe everyone's familiar with different waves of feminism and what that means, um, but does it... Oh. So you want to just summarize it really? Anyone who want to summarize it quickly? Well, first wave is the suffragettes, right? So Seneca Falls Commission, right to vote, that kind of thing. Uh, second wave, late 70s, Gloria Stein and Betty Friedan, which was by no means a monolith. Uh, there was lots of infighting within the, the second wave women's movement, so don't, uh, don't, don't have any romantic notions. I know people do. Uh, and then third wave is a little, like Rebecca Walker actually coined that term. How would you define third wave, Sarah? I mean, third wave is basically like your, your late 90s and aughts. I think Jessica Valenti is in there. And, and that was a kind of like sex positive. Yeah, it's a sex like, positive um, movement, but right. it's a much more minor movement. And then I think of the fourth wave as being the big, you know, market feminism boom that happened or started around 2006 with 
you know, a lot of the online spaces and then kind of rides up to 2016 where Hillary doesn't get elected. Right. So the fourth wave is kind of like a hybrid between the girl boss thing and yeah. the Tumblr thing, which then had like the social justice piece was woven in there. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. Yes. Moving on. Okay. I'm going to ask another question. Oh, but oh go to your, you No, no, you go first. Oh, no. Well, I was just really quickly going to say, I think, you know, back to the having children thing, I think there was second wave feminism essentially put an embargo on conversations about certain biological realities. So the idea was women are the same as men. They can have the same jobs. Um, it's the patriarchy that's telling us otherwise. And even something as, and I, and then we had the birth control pill. So you created a situation where the default setting of women's fertility for the first time in history of human civilization was infertile. Like it was assumed that you were not going to be able to get pregnant because everybody was supposedly on the pill. Um, so I think people just kind of forgot about reality. I mean, I had, um, I mean, just really quickly, I, I published, I, I don't, I never wanted children. I think most people do want children. And so I'm like very careful about saying like, I'm an outlier. I, I edited and published a book um, of writers talking about choosing not to have children. And I've done a lot of interviews on the subject and had a lot of media people asking me questions. And one time I was being interviewed for a podcast um, and it was like these kind of hipster, groovy hosts, a man and a woman. And they said something like, well, isn't it just terrible the way women are, are always being told there's a biological clock, you know? And I said, well, there is a biological clock, you know, th th there is. And they like cut that part out of the podcast. Wow. Because <laughs> it was so like upsetting or something. So I just thought that was very telling. One thing that I thought feminism, and I, I definitely do not know what these gals know, and they know that I don't know because I don't really follow it. And Your question's next. So, okay, uh, one thing I did know, my daughter, who was born in 1989 and who is here with us tonight in the back, um, I noticed around that time or maybe just afterward that, that in the feminist circles there was this sort of well, if we do have children, not only like, well, you know, we're going to axiomatically be held down by the patriarchy because we're making certain choices, but also that they wanted some sort of like heroism for mothering a child. And I just didn't really understand why that was necessary. Um, you know, having a child can sometimes be hard. It, it's an incredible joy. You will learn things that you would not have learned. And I just didn't understand why we, it had to be so much constantly in the conversation. It's like, look, we've done this. We've all done this. Everybody has done this since time immemorial. And, and it's a thing. It doesn't have to become this sort of beanbag that we kick around. It, just, it can be easier. I didn't, I don't, the, and again, I'm not studying it, yeah. but the conversations that I was just kind of hearing didn't strike me as particularly joyful. They just really were kind of like downers all the time. Meanwhile, I'm just like having a blast with my kid. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's interesting. So one, just quickly to follow up, what it makes me think of is I imagine that some, what someone would say is something like, okay, that's all true. Women have been doing this for time immemorial and whatever. Like, there's nothing new here. Um, and don't you think women's work is, is undervalued? Don't you think that the role of being a mother is undervalued by, okay, it's undervalued by whom? By whoever. By whom? Who's undervaluing it? 
I mean, you not everybody has a spouse. Some people do. Sometimes it's hard to raise a kid. I've done it. You know, you got to make money. You got to figure it out. Maybe you have a spouse. Do, does your spouse or partner come home every day and make a demand to be acknowledged that, you know, he paid the phone bill or she paid the electric bill? It's like, you just work together and you do it. I just, all this need for constant acknowledgement is, I just, I find it a bummer. Okay. All right. So let me, I'm going to jump a little bit on topic here and ask a different question. Um, So one of the questions is, again, so I'm really, this is really shifting topics, which hopefully will keep things interesting. There's a question that was sent in about how, if an artist, and I think by artist here, we're talking about any musician, any actual artist, could be a YouTuber, could be whatever, or an actor, or whatever, um, does something controversial, is it necessary to stop consuming that art? So we think of examples, like, like Michael Jackson would be an extreme example, or, or, or whatever, like, do you have to stop? Or is there a, how do you think about kind of the line between, like, is there a point where you would say the answer to that question is yes? Is there a point where it's no? Like, how do you, and what determines where you are on that? Well, who decides? I mean, I I get to make my decision about Michael Jackson or uh, Louis C.K., and you can make yours. Um, You know, I I might have my own... I've seen Louis C.K. perform. I think sometimes he's great. I think sometimes he's not. I think he had a pretty bad night that wasn't probably the greatest thing. But you know what? If you enjoy his work, then you're allowed to enjoy his work. I don't think we all, and, I, and it's actually also impossible to come to a consensus that we all should feel this way. So, you know, let, let the person decide for themselves. Well, it's it's very weird to me because it feels like a generational shift. This this thing, you know, I was growing up in the '90s, and I was like, "Oh, Edgar Allan Poe was uh, dated as a 13-year-old. Oh, I want to read that." <laughs> like, I found that fascinating. Like, that was a reason to read somebody because everything was boring. And then if people did really crazy ass, oh, Norman Mailer stabbed his wife with a pen. I want to read that guy. So to me, that was like. Uh, I was like a heat-seeking missile for that. So it's very strange to me then to roll the tape, you know, 15 years forward, and it's like, oh, no, we can't do that because of a tweet. We, we can't talk, you know, that guy tweeted something wrong. You know, he appeared on a podcast, and he laughed at the wrong joke. And it's like, what on earth? You know, I, I think one of the things that, do, that did happen in that time and we'll just keep coming back to it because unfortunately, like, it's just the disruptor of, you know, this century, which is that the internet made so much more information available. So the, the amount of stuff that you knew about the people that you loved. I mean, I sort of bemoan the days when you listen to dumb pop on the radio and you know who the hell they were. And there was a dumb, um, you know, uh, Bop magazine that told you stuff that their marketing people said that how their favorite color was blue. I mean, that was exciting. I, I, you know, and now it's like, it's like you know so much. We are drowning in information. If I really took that stuff seriously, how could I ever like anyone? I mean, but the thing is, is that, like I was drawn to art because people were broken, and so I, I've never yes. understood here, this here. thing. Anyway, man, no, I I don't have anything to add to that. I, Agreed. What she said. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto. Um, so I, one of the questions, so, you know, it's, it reminds me, so Sarah, what you're saying, it reminds me of um, that 
it sort of ties to this. So why do we have to? So again, I'm trying to find myself in the position of trying to think about well, what would the what would somebody who thought that you should draw a line between, you know, or you shouldn't draw a line between the artist and their and their most controversial or most you know odious statement or whatever if it's viewed that way. Um, it seems like it's tied to this view. You said that one of the things that you noticed was that things the saying that. I think it's better to be a woman in, you know, 2010 than it is in 1963 or whatever. Like that seemed like a fairly obvious statement and that suddenly, and then the perspective changed and that there's things are worse. So tied in with that idea that things are worse, right? And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not endorsing or condemning this idea, but that tied in with that idea that things are worse is this feeling that like we have to take a stand. Things are so bad, we have to, and which goes, Sarah, to what you're saying, I think. We, things are so bad, we have to take a stand, um, including, you know, and we have to draw clear, we need clear lines about what's on, and know who and what is on which side of the line at all times. So it seems like there's a link there. I just, I'm so I guess I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I think one of the worst uh, maxims that ever came into the public consciousness is the personal is the political. That is just like hollow horseshit. What does it even mean? What does it mean? It, I mean, it's just sort of like a way like everything is political or like I remember I had a book editor said to me something like, well, you know, you're a woman, you're a woman writing. So therefore everything you write is political. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, it's just, I think that that was just kind of like you know, rolling out the carpet for the kind of narcissism that we see today. I mean, again, like the culture of narcissism is another kind of totally overused concept that I'm not quite sure what it means. But um, I just, I think that we need to be able to get back to taking in ideas and art, artistic expression and stories on their own terms and in and of themselves. The artist is creating something that is outside of himself. And we owe it as the audience to, to accept that work on its own terms and make our own decisions about it. You I mean, also, it's always an option to not take a stand. You don't have to take a stand. You don't have to take a stand on abortion. You do not have to take a stand on Donald Trump. You don't have to. There may be some things you feel that you want to, and that's great. And I would hope that you would read deeply and widely and consider other people's opinions, and, and that's great. But the idea that we all need to take a stand on something is just inflaming things, inflaming everything. You know, I, you know milk is racist, right? Um, you, all the time. And we contribute to that when we believe we need to take a stand. You don't. It's always an option. I think, so I'm curious how you would, so obviously the, the sort of counterpoint would be that, you know, well, not taking a stand is still taking a stand, right? It's a privilege not to take a stand, Nancy, don't you know? I'm busy doing something else. I'm baking cookies. I'm writing something. I don't know. I don't, you don't get my time. See, that was the problem with Trump. It was like suddenly such an emergency. Like the Trump emergency was such that like we needed all hands on deck. Nobody could have any other concerns, any other interests. And so if you weren't responding to it, you were like doing an, an immoral act. But Actually. isn't it totally bizarre that we that that we spend so much time worrying about the presidential politics about which we have almost zero control and almost no time at all thinking about local politics about which we have actually an element in being able to change something? I mean, the obsession with 
I remember a, a friend of mine was taking a vacation for a month to write, and she programmed her tweets every day to be resistance, like anti-Trump. And I was like, oh, right, because otherwise the republic will fall. Um, I don't understand, um, you know, back to this point about, like, like, is it possible that our lives are much better than they ever have been, but they feel much worse? They feel much worse because of the ways that we are sort of, you know, seeing more information, more than we even know how to handle. And what we need desperately is not to be... Um, is not to, to be taking stands and changing the world, but like a hardcore dose of cognitive behavioral therapy to like learn how to create boundaries so that, you know, we can stay in our own lanes. I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I really think that, that the, that the, the way news has been delivered to us has hoodwinked us. I, I think that we're all a little bit brainwashed. I think you also have to remember that anyone that tells you you need to take a stand on X or Y, they have their own agenda. So do you want to be part of that agenda? Or do you want to say, well, no, I'm going to be anti that agenda. You don't have to engage with it at all. I mean, unless you're in immediate danger, then you might want to like, you know, put the fire out in your kitchen or something like that. Yeah, no, this is, I, I, I do think there's a lot to sort of pull out of this question about how bad are things, like, and sort of what are people thinking. And actually, I think you, what you're saying about, um, you know, that things, again, this idea of things are better and things are worse and that we have more information. So it's almost like our reference point for what, given the, inf the information, this sort of onslaught of information has changed our reference point and our expectations. Um, right, so that's, that's yeah. So given where the question, I think this leads nicely into the next question, um, which is, so I'm gonna read the question as it was sent in, and I think there's a, and I think we can take a little bit of a different way into it, but the question the way it was submitted was, with social justice elites framing the narrative in mainstream journalism, you used the word hoodwinked, Sarah, um, is it possible to take back those institutions or is the only way forward to create new institutions? So this question is obviously specifically asking about mainstream journalism. We happen to be sitting here at UATX, which is obviously, you know, has made a stand when it comes to higher education about creating a new institution. Um, but I guess, you know, to what extent, maybe to what extent, how do you see the problems in mainstream media? And to what extent, how big is the fire? And to what extent do you think it's worth trying to put out? So I would just throw all of those questions out. Do we have 14 hours? To we have 14 hours. <laughs> we'll, we'll be here till tomorrow. Uh, okay, well, I'll be, I will say a small thing. I mean, this is just one tiny piece of it. I, I, I don't think that the mainstream institutions are going to uh, write themselves probably in my lifetime, I would say. Um, maybe, maybe never. But we've, seen but, the we've seen the Times make a little bit of a pivot. 
the little New York bit. Times? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, let's a little be, bit. Let's yeah. be really clear about what the problem, like what you see the problem as. When we say hoodwink, when we that say there's a, that there's themselves. an ideological capture in mainstream media organizations. And what does that look like? Well, that means um, that means running a million stories about gender transition that take as an article of faith that certain medical practices that we know uh, don't work, you, statistics that we know are not true, and presenting them as accepted fact. I mean, and, and in fact, those statistics are coming from professional medical organizations that have also been captured and that are, you know, putting out the, this data and physicians are reading it and saying, oh, well, if the American Pediatric Association says this, it must be right. I mean, this is like these, the downstream effects of these institutions putting out information that has been completely like I mean it's wrong it's not even just that it's wrong it's just that it is um it has been the people in charge are activists activists have taken over the institutions but here's the thing about the news and I'll stop I'll stop you talking have to stop. a lot of these no because I the, a lot of these news organizations it's not that like everybody at NBC News is suddenly like, you know, a, a, a woke person. 90% of them are not. What you have is that they're afraid of their own employees. So you've got news directors, you've got baby boomer and Gen X age executives, people in leadership positions who are terrified of their rank and file. They're afraid of the employees, you know, staging a, some kind of riot, and frankly, they're afraid for their jobs. And it's, it's very simple. A lot of them, they have families to feed, they have college tuitions to pay, they have mortgages to pay, and if they are like, you know, middle-aged, uh, regular old folks, they probably are not going to get another job. So I think that they're just like biding their time. And by the way, one of the things that happened at the publications where I was was that the youngest people on staff would get shunted off to the internet because the idea was it wasn't really very important. And so you could make mistakes. So, you know, the, this, what mattered was in print. Well, lo and behold, like what's the biggest, you know, megaphone that you're holding? It's the internet. And so, you know... Uh, one of the reasons why people that were older got so scared of people that were younger was because they saw the power that they had. They knew how to move Twitter. They knew how to move all these different engines that, you know, suddenly institutional knowledge, you're sort of like, well, I've been covering cops for 20 years. Well, who cares? That's a liability. It's a liability. Actually, yeah. So, so the, the, you know, the institutional knowledge that you had was suddenly working against you, whereas this whole new generation was rising up and knew how to operate machines you didn't at all. And you sort of let them run the you know, you gave them the keys to the castle because you didn't want to mess with the castle. You didn't know it was a castle. You thought it was a dump. So, yeah. So, the legacy institutions are dependent on certain revenue streams. There were revenue streams, advertising, of course, has died in many ways. They, they need their customers. And customers, when you tell them that there's an emergency going on, it's like, the, it's like the mouse with the cocaine little lever. Like, they want that next hit. We saw that obviously just through the roof with Trump. So they're going to give their, 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 uh, their audience what they want. Not, I don't think, necessarily because they are mendacious, sometimes a little bit, sometimes because they're activists, but because they all of a sudden create this kind of machine that is dependent on that emergency information. Um, you don't, as a journalist, you do not have to feed that. I was on the ground in Portland. I've written about 65 stories on the riots and what happened in Portland. And I've had many people ask me, oh, did you write, did your editors tell you to write for the clicks? 
did they want you to write for the clicks? And I was like, I would never write for a place that asked me to do that. There are places where you can write um, where they are, they are very curious in having you tell them the story that you find and what people tell you. And then you also do create the new institutions. You are looking at three people, four people that have done that, have created a podcast, have created um, media companies where you try to do your best to give viewers and listeners something that they feel is trustworthy. I believe that the reader and the listener can smell it when you're telling them the truth. Now, of course, there's not one truth, and you obviously are not out there to satisfy anybody, but I am a big believer in creating new ways to tell people stories. I read a quote many years ago. I wish I could remember where I read it, but I can't. It said, people will longer voluntarily go longer without food than they will without hearing or telling stories. So that's what we do. That's why you're here. Um, and I think that you will find the people that you trust to tell them to you. That's, I mean, it's just so interesting. Sarah, I didn't know if you were waiting to respond or? No, go ahead. Okay. So so it reminds me, I just want to, I want to linger before we go on to the next question. It reminds me a little bit. So Megan and Nancy, you both seem to be on the side of, I think mainstream media is lost. It won't write itself. Like we need to find other platforms. I guess it reminds me a little bit of this, um, op-ed that one of the former Washington Post editor wrote, I think, this was, I think it was earlier this year, about sort of newsrooms and identity and journalism and, and all of this stuff. And his, I'm probably not going to do it justice in summarizing it, but his point was largely that actually what could happen, what could get, what could make things, one thing that could make things a lot better is just transparency. Right? He, and I, and I, you don't have to, I'm just curious what you think about this argument. Basically, like, if we acknowledged, if we didn't treat these things as fact, if we acknowledged, you know, the assumptions that we were making, um, that would go a long way in terms of increasing trust um, among readers. And so I'm wondering how you, again, I'm, not, I'm probably not doing it justice. You but mean transparency, like, we, we are telling you that we are a left-leaning news organization? Maybe, I don't well, know exactly but we already what have, But we already that. have that. And so people just choose... They're facts. And, and then we have, you know, if, if you're so transparent, then you get into like the ultimate echo chamber where you have Fox News, you know, <laughs> reporting on things that behind the scenes they know aren't even true because it's just such a given that they're playing to their audience. I don't know. I mean, no, it's an interesting. Uh, yeah. maybe, yeah. I, I also don't necessarily agree that I don't trust legacy media. I think things can change. We have seen some things change at the New York Times. And, you know, things are, these are all living organisms. They, maybe they will calcify. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll surprise us. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet that some places will, and I would love that. Why not have these places that are, you know, the places that have been around forever that you can just get at your newsstand or it's the first thing that comes up when you Google something? Maybe they will. Yeah, that's I, the other, and the other just quick follow-up I wanted before we go on to the next question was, I think I just said that before, but this is another follow-up. Nancy, you had said, um, I just want to gently kind of push a little on one of the things that you said, which was that, you know, the, I don't know, you, I don't know how you worded it, but you said something about the, um, everything, I'm going to say it differently, but everything is a five alarm fire, Right. A five alarm fire, like everything is sort of like there's urgency. You use the word urgency, but like there's urgency. And you said, and what you said was we saw this, you know, most clearly during when Trump was elected in 2016. And so someone could come in and they could say, okay, well, you're saying that it's all, 
you know, that it's sort of exaggerated hype, that it's hyperbole in terms of the, the, ur the urgency and the sense, of, the sense of drama or whatever, someone could say, well, no, this is actually, you're understating the, how bad, again, like, so you're understating how bad things are and things, we just elected, you know, our racist, I'm, again, I'm just wearing an argument here, We're, we just elected our racist in chief and we need to do, we need to do everything we can, all hands on deck, right now, to take, like, so right, that would be the response. So or something probably better than that, but something I like that. I think in general, people make terrible decisions when it's an emergency. Sarah, you have three minutes to get out of the building. It's like, oh, where am I going to go? Like you don't, you, I, I've said this to Sarah, we've said this on the podcast. I think as journalists, it's our job to calm people down. To me, like, here I am. I did this thing. I know you couldn't be there. I did it. I'm going to give you the news super calm so you can make good decisions. That's not what happened under Trump. I'll give you an example. It's not a great example. Well, actually, I'm not even going to give you an example. Let, let's take the example of January 6th, which was horrible. Absolutely horrible. I'm not going to, I, I, full stop. But didn't we all feed that for four years that created that? Our constant fighting with our neighbors, saying every single you know Trump voter is a white supremacist and a far right person that is done, and then you know on the other side calling like, well these lefties what they're doing and killing the country and look at the DI and what they're going to do with our children, didn't we feed that fire? We did, and I think we have some responsibility not to feed that fire. Are you talking about we as the media, America, or anything? and Americans? In general, and, I mean, the, and the media. Unfortunately, the economic model is essentially yeah, based on fire feeding. I mean, you know, like like nothing helped the the failing you know mainstream media like the outrage over Trump and all of these stories. You know, I agree with Nancy that our job is to calm people down when you're when you're talking about emergency situations. But it's entering machine that is that is designed to get attention by ramping people up. You know, I mean, I think something really interesting happened to journalism when all the the energy went into the headline, which wasn't true before the internet. You used to be able to headline something kind of rather mundane because people went to your homepage, they read your stories, they had a relationship with you. Yeah. But then when all the sort of declarative and, and, and grabby energy had to go into that headline, not only did the did, did all the outrage get turned up, but you broke trust with your readers because they would start to read the stories and they were like, that's not what this story is about. That's where clickbait came from. That's where, you know, and that's where a lot of people start to lose faith in what they're reading. And, you know, I, I it was because you went from people having one homepage to everybody fighting in an arena and, and covering the same subject. And how does your story stand out? Anyway. Sorry, that was a riff. But I just think I no, just you're think total, you're that, totally that right. like an un like people yeah. don't talk about that, which happened around like two thousand and you know, five to eight, and it, it, it leads into this this thing that you're talking about. So by the time Trump gets in there, everything explodes. Yeah, there's so there's so much in what just in so much in what you're saying, just in terms of what the obligation. I mean, for you all as writers or in journalism more generally, what are your obligations in terms of to your readers? To I mean, there's just a lot there that I think is it's worth thinking about and that's interesting. Um, so let me go to a different question. We'll switch gears a little bit. Um, the question came in: How do you reconcile? the feeling of knowing you're against something, but being unsure if your opinion should be the law. 
where abortion is the obvious example, but I could imagine, you know, drug use, you know, I could imagine that would be another example, and there are probably others as well. Um, so I guess the question is sort of separating when something is your own personal opinion and when it should be law, and how do you think about that distinction? These are such good questions, by the way. I want to say we were totally, like, you knocked our socks off when we saw some of these questions, so uh, well done. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I'm enough of a, I'm a libertarian-minded enough that I would say m most of what I think is my business, and, you know, most, most things should not be against the law. Let's put it that way. I mean, you shouldn't be able to murder somebody, you should be able to steal something like abortion. Well, okay, actually, that's a tough one. A tough one. And um, I just had Frances Kissling on uh, my podcast for the second time. She's, she's phenomenal, and you guys should all know who she is. She's 80 years old. She is a legendary abortion rights activist. Uh, she was the president of Catholics for Choice for a very long time. Um, she talks about the subject with just incredible nuance. I mean... Uh, the you know the abort the fact is with abortion is that most people are in the middle, and the way that 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 war has been fought it's been fought between the two extremes and so the abortion on demand messaging from the pro choice side just created an overcorrection on the other side so yeah um, should so what I, what should I think should be a law look I, I think ridiculous things so nothing that I think should be a law but let's I'll just I'll just I'll just end it right there yeah I relate to that. <laughs> Like, yeah, never mind. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I tend to write about crime. I write about murder. I, I think violent crime, there should be penalties for violent crime because violent criminals tend to be violent again. Um, in, other, in other things, I mean, I'm very conflicted about um, drugs. I'm very conflicted about abortion. And I don't think that my opinions really, I'm, I'm happy to think about them and also change my views sometimes. But I definitely do not think that my opinion should be law. You know, I... I <sighs> Abortion is such a tricky one because I think it falls outside the bounds of like, okay, because for some people it's a moral, it's a moral evil, yeah. right? Okay, but I was just reading this story in the free press, Barry Weiss's, um, okay. So, and there was something and it was, it was by this guy that had talked about the way they handle abortion in Japan. Now, excuse me if I get this wrong because like I know nothing about how they handle abortion in Japan. All I'm doing is recalling what I read one morning. But the idea was that it was just completely personal. Like there was no laws around it. Everyone understood that it was a sin, okay, because... It wasn't something you wanted to do, but it would, like, having an opinion about whether or not somebody else did that would be like having an opinion about what they did in their bedroom. And that makes sense to me. The idea that government should be legislating what, you know, things that are really kind of deeply private. I, mean, I think one of the things that, that has been, so, so many things about that, that are sad about the abortion debate, um, because for people that go through it, and I have spoken about having had my own abortion and, and having very conflicted feelings about it. Um, the idea that I was going to shout my abortion is horrible to me. I don't want to, I don't... That was, by the way, that, that was a big kind of feminist trope. That, that was a third or fourth wave feminist trope going around, by the hashtag, way. Just, hashtag yeah. shout your abortion to remove the stigma, by the yeah. way, so... Yeah. Ha yeah, ha yeah, hashtag, like... It, <laughs> I was going to start, like, shout your STD. Well, I was, yeah, I, I, was I don't thinking, know why every, that I, never took you, off. Thank you. I was, yeah. I was digging around for something like that. It, 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 it was like that. But, it, you know, uh, 
a lot of these things that have become publicly rancorous are really just personal decisions. I mean, the abortion thing is interesting, too, because there's plenty of people that find it to be moral evil until their daughter has, gets pregnant at 14 or until, you know, like until something happens in their family. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why that's a great and thoughtful question. So I want to I transition now to um, audience Q&A and make sure that we have lots of time for questions from that, that I'm sure people have thought of as you all have been talking. Um, so let's do that. And I, I guess I'm happy to field questions that people have. So the, yeah, the floor's open. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Maggie, and I'm a big fan of... Uh, Megan's podcast and Nancy's Portland reporting and uh, the. You'll I, get to know me eventually. It's I, fine. I, I don't take it personally. <laughs> um, but I'm also I'm also sober actually. So thank oh, you. Cool. Yeah. So um, so and one of my favorite moments in podcasting ever was when William Dershowitz said, "Screw Terry Gross." Right. It was like. Ooh. Oh, William Dershowitz. Is that who says that? You Dershowitz? just conflated William Dershowitz and um, Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz. That's oh, hilarious. That's so funny. No, no, no. Yeah. That's no. That's um. Yes. William. Yeah. Dr- William. Dershowitz. Yes. William Dershowitz. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, because then I was like, okay, so normal people can write book reviews, right? Um, but I feel like this is kind of a devil's advocate question. But we, we at this, um, sort of this, whatever it is, we've been going to these panels, it's four night of panels, fourth night of panels, and we keep hearing like the legacy media is lost and crap and gone to hell and woke. And I, I mean, I actually work in right of center media, so I get it. Um, but I think that like, if the, you look at the New York Times, they publish a lot of cultural stuff that's all about race and a lot of trans stuff that's weird. And there's a lot of woke stuff, right? But there's also like, stuff about the war in the Ukraine and the New York Yankees and a highway that fell down in Philadelphia and stuff about stocks. And I think there's just still a lot of non-woke stuff in the legacy media. And 100%. Um, I think that maybe maybe that means there's still a role. And I'm, I'm definitely an anti-woke person, but I think there's maybe still a role in, there still would be a role for me to write about the highways for the Philadelphia Inquirer, you know? Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, I meant to say that earlier. The New York Times still has excellent reporting. Their international hard, hard reporting is, is the, unparalleled. Yeah. But here's the thing. Okay, so what if you had to go report a story about a bridge falling down and an editor said, okay, well, find a way to talk about how this has affected people of color more. This bridge collapse is especially hard on this community. And this kind of, these kind of conversations go on in the newsroom. And it just, it, unfortunately, it just becomes insidious. Well, I will just say, I mean, you also can say no. I mean, I don't know. I'm not on staff any place. I've been freelance my whole life. Um, but I I've, I've, haven't had that too much. I mean, I write for a reason. So, they, you know, they're like, go out. I mean, I write. know people. Who, I mean, I, mainstream newspapers, these arguments go on in the newsroom all the time. But you also can say, I'm sure they do. But I think you can also say, well, you know, I'm the person that went out there for and talked to 14 people, and it really wasn't um, part of the conversation. Your editor could tell you to go back and do it again. You could say no, <laughs> I guess. But um, I do think we do have, when we're the people on the ground investigating the stories, I think if you maybe you said to your editor, you know, I really, I really didn't find that was, they might just say, okay, okay. I yeah. mean, I don't know. I, I want to go back to the part where you wanted to write about highways for the Philadelphia Inquirer. <laughs> 
Um, I am slightly concerned about your career lane. Uh, I think it's good. Um, I, no, I, 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 I mean, do everything this is over what again, I'll say I about that. it is that I think the New York Times is astonishing. I actually think it's an amazing publication. Um, I'm much more concerned about the local newspapers and their ability to survive. I see so much of the subscriber base, you know, going over to New York Times and Washington Post. I think Philadelphia Inquirer is probably okay. Okay. That's legit. I mean, well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't I know, but but I just I, I think that the the local the local news is endangered. Yeah. Okay. And I don't sure. really know how long it survives. Mhm. Uh not be, and that's that's more to do with the technological disruption yeah. mm-hmm. than than I think it has to do with with uh with wokeness. politics. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Next question, yeah. Yep, sure, in the back. I don't know if I'm missing anyone. Um, I'm Ian. Thank you for speaking tonight. Uh, The question about is, I guess I'll bring up mainstream media again because it's easy to talk about. You were mentioning, like, how big is the fire? Is it worth putting out? Should we build new institutions? And you mentioned that it's sort of like they're a victim of economics, and one of you, I'm sorry for forgetting who said that, um, but like people are demanding these ridiculous stories with ridiculous headlines. And I'm wondering if they are fundamentally economically motivated and they see something like the free press doing well, do you not think that that could quite easily and maybe surprisingly quickly change how those organizations are run and the types of stories that they publish? Well, I think those things are lumbering cruise ships that can't really turn that fast. I mean, you know, but but I do think everybody's got their eye on what Barry's doing with the free press. And, and what she's been able to do has been incredible. But you have to understand, nobody's figured out how to make money on the Internet. I mean, this is a problem. This is a problem. You know, like they made a lot of money on print advertising. And it hasn't, you know filtered over it's not clear everybody kind of keeps their kimono closed on how they're keeping these things afloat but you know whether it's subscriber models or sponsors your deep pockets or trust fund money I mean basically every mainstream media wants to be bought out by a benevolent billionaire at this point and it doesn't work. I mean, look at the L.A. Times. It can work. Texas is, Monthly is owned by a benevolent okay. All oil right. millionaire. You're, you're, you do billionaires better down here, I think, yeah. in Texas. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Hello, case in point. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, it's... Uh, I, nobody, I think you're absolutely right. Nobody's really figured out how to crack the code in terms of making money. I mean, you know, the thing is that... The death of newspapers, it was, you know, the the Macy's ad, the full-page Macy's ad in the back of the A section of the New York Times used to pay for the entire New York Times. Just that one ad. And local newspapers, do you know what did them in more than anything? Craigslist. Right, because they were numbered classified. Because classified ads actually paid for most local newspapers. And sex ads in, like, the alt-weeklies. Right. Yeah, yes, yes. It's that banal actually in terms of like barry eating everybody's lunch you know she's still experimenting and things are great and there are certain people with deep pockets and there's a lot of people that want to write for her because there's there's this competition and all that you know she's 
I think things will pivot. She will be one example of how you do this. She's sort of a, a vilified figure, uh, like inside a lot of these legacy medias. So the idea that they'd be like, wow, look what Barry's doing. We better do that is not going to happen for a while. Um, but things will change. I mean, they have to. Yeah, go here, here in the middle row. Hi, my name is Grant. Um, as four women, I was interested to get your perspective on uh, challenges facing men in this country, um, including young men. We hear a lot about like how there's a patriarchy against women, but 60% of people in college, college-age students, are women. You have crazy statistics like most men at age of 50 like don't have any close friends. Um, and there's also this like constant barrage about talking about like toxic masculinity. Meanwhile, like everything having to do with like feminism and femininity is like put on a pedestal, so women can kind of like uh, search for that and try to reach that for their identities. But men are sort of told to like bring it back in a little bit, and I think this starts with like young boys even. So, just as a woman, do you think that's like even unhealthy for women to have that sort of societal narrative around like the role of men? I think uh, so many things. First of all, that's a something that I am very concerned about and I'm glad that you brought it up. It was something that really struck me when I was uh, touring colleges in 2015. I noticed that all the women were sitting in the front. This is not true here. Um, all the women were sitting in the front. All the guys were sitting in the back completely checked out. It was clear to me that they were, like, I don't know the chicken and the egg thing. That was just not like what it was in college. Men were the ones that were like arguing with you. They were super engaged. I got this sense that they were like totally checked out and I saw it everywhere I went. Um, there is a book, I'm sure you know it, Richard Reeves is a boys and men. He's been on like every single podcast. He's spoken very eloquently about this, but your question was about, oh, it's, it's good. You should read it. It's, it's yeah. Um, Richard Reeves of boys and men. Um, but your question was about, uh, what really started to bug me in the last, I think, five to ten years, which was, a, which was a really disdainful and scornful and bullying way that women felt comfortable talking about men. And I didn't know how to disrupt it. I mean, this is something that I've talked about with both of these women on this panel, privately and then publicly as well, that suddenly it was like women were so upset at being bullied that they got the bullhorn and they became the bullies. And there was just all this shutdown. And I really couldn't stand it. I love men. I mean, we like to say this on our podcast all the time. We say it all the time. We, we love, love men. men. We had an episode called We Love Men. Yeah. <laughs> we love men. Where would we be without men? And, and it is so unfortunate to me that, that this sort of fashionable crank became a kind of power flex. You know, I remember reading a, a book with my female book club uh, that was about feminism, and oh my God, women just, I mean, I will include myself in this. We were just complaining. I mean, like, oh, this thing is annoying, and that thing is annoying. And at one point, I just said, hey, which, how many of you want to be guys? Not one of them raised their hand. Not one of them. But the whole dialogue had been how put down we are, how much guys, you know, guys do this, guys do that. Oh, no. Because then I couldn't, why, why don't you want to be, good? well, I couldn't cry. I couldn't wear a dress. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do you that. You help people move. I can't. I think that's the yeah, worst. Yeah, they don't have, fr they don't have friends. No. You know, I, well, I wouldn't go to my wine dates. You know, whatever. Yeah. This, this, um, the, uh, I want that mm, toxic dialogue to change. I want, I want it to end. Yeah. I know. 1,000%. I, 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 
I, I find it so unuseful. Again, it sort of ties in with what I was saying about, you know, I'm a mother now and I should be acknowledged. Acknowledge me. It's like, what? I, I don't like this conversation. I don't agree with it. We have had many conversations about how it really should stop. And it should stop, you know, I mean, I've had friends say to me that they have to talk to their like 12 and 13 year old sons and say, you know, be careful. Like you have to be really, really careful if you like a girl, like don't try to hold her hand. Don't do any of these things because you don't know what's going to wallop you. This is just, it's, I think that this charge too is being led by women. And I would like to, why, why are women doing this? Why, why, where do they think, how do they think that this is going to be beneficial? So I wrote basically an entire book about this called The Problem With Everything. I, it was going to be called Woke Me When It's Over. Um, I love, my, uh, I love. My publisher vetoed that probably wisely. But, um, you know, so much of the mindset around publicly castigating men, making fun of men, complaining about male tears. I drink male tears, uh, talking about toxic masculinity. Um, it, the premise is, it's, if you look at like an intersectional framework, the premise is, well, we're allowed to talk this way about men because they have more power than we do. We are punching up to power. Therefore, we have impunity to behave this way, to basically be abusive. And to me, it's such a self-own because what you're actually doing is putting men up on a pedestal that they were not even necessarily on before so that you may then punch them. And so you are taking your own power away and giving it to your so, you know, so-called adversary. And it just makes no sense. It was a completely logical fallacy. It, it's logical fallacy coming from fourth wave feminism, basically. And it always just, exas it just exasperated me. And this was before Me Too, by the way. This was very well in play. You know, so Richard Reeves actually just started, like, the Institute on Boys and Men. Have you heard this? He just announced this oh, on Father's cool. Day, I think. Cool. So he's going to be doing some really important work. Um, so maybe he'll save the day. But he needs more funding, too, of course. <laughs> Don't we all? Um, it's, you know, what, part of what it makes me think of is... So I have three boys, um, and two of whom are teenagers. One is about to turn 14, and the other one is about to turn 16. And it does make me wonder, like what I see in them, my youngest is he's about to, he's gonna be 11, so he's a little bit, he's not quite in that age range yet. But they, uh, it does make me wonder sort of how much of this and in what ways it affects them, because what I see in them is like, this is a bunch of BS, right? Like, and a total, I mean, at least with me and like how they talk with me. And so I don't, I, I guess I'm, I'm, that's not a, it's more, it's really just a question. Like, I don't know what, or what the long-term, maybe there's differ, a difference between sort of short-term and long-term effects, or maybe what sort of gets internalized versus not. I don't, I don't, I just, I'm just voicing the question. I also have a lot of faith in the kids that they'll figure this stuff out. <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah. I think that kids that, that age are seeing through this. Yeah. It's the, yes. it's the yeah. 20 something, it's like you guys' age that, <laughs> I, not, not anyone here, but, uh. But I also worry that there's going to be such an overcorrection. It's going to swing back the other way. I mean, we're already seeing it with the Andrew Tates of the world. And yeah, I think stuff. we've sown seeds of resentment that we're going to be dealing with yeah. for, for years to come. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, yep, and go in the blue shirt in the back. Thank you. My name is Jet. I think we're seeing an interesting sort of shift in my generation where so much news and journalism is becoming integrated on social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat even. And since those platforms tend to be very politically divisive and ideologically charged, do you think that's contributing to the sort of division we're seeing among voters? And if we're to solve that, do you think the solution needs to come from the bottom up within journalists or from top down, like with the tech giants themselves or even legislation? Silence. <laughs> no, uh, I, well, do I, that young was people, a great question that is like beyond my pay grade. Do, do young people vote? I mean, if they're looking at TikTok, I remember when I was in Portland, um, my husband at the time had a lot of young employees and they were so absolutely apoplectic and incensed at the idea of Trump and they were frightened and they talked about it constantly and they put up posters and then after the election it turned out that none of them had voted. So I'm like, okay, you know, and I'm not saying that you should, you can vote if you want, you don't have to vote if you don't want to. I am, you know, I do write for a libertarian magazine, but so I do wonder like who's on TikTok, you know, they're mostly pretty young uh, and are they even voting or is it enough for them to feel that they can, you know, you know, when you were talking about you know, it's easy about local news versus, you know, Trump, you know, it's very, very easy to complain about Trump and say you're frightened and all these terrible things are going to happen. But if you actually want to make a change in Philadelphia, that's, you know, you got to actually do some work. Like you got to, you know, go to the meetings or create the organizations and maybe people don't really want to do that. So maybe the divisiveness you're seeing on TikTok, maybe it is more performative. I don't know. I certainly don't have the answers in terms of how is it going to change from the bottom up or the top down. I, I, I don't know that I would trust it coming from the top down because, you know, they, you know, anybody that tells you again to think a certain way, they have an agenda. So um, um, I don't know. I don't know. Frozen. Yeah, I think oh, yeah. I, I'm like formulating something, but it's like only half there. But it's that this, you know, the the woman that is taking over TikTok comes from Discovery, and you know, I think a lot of the like the cable places are fleeing, and the cable people are going to go over to TikTok and YouTube, and they're yeah. going to get, you know, it's going to be like kind of like the old bosses. You know, the new boss is like the old boss, you know. I think I think this stuff is going to get sorted out. I don't know how, but I think it's going to be according to money. So, um... I'll, I guess I'll just add a couple of thoughts, um, because this is... You are speaking my language. Um, I, for, so, for whatever it's worth, I would probably say two things. I think one is I think there's an open question about... Right, like is sort of where does the causal arrow go when it comes to the polarization that you see on social media and that's reflected in society like is one and there's probably all kinds of complex feedback loops and things like that so it's probably not all one way or the other the other thing that I would say and I wouldn't want to miss this opportunity to plug the Mill Institute um, is that I think that you can you posed it as sort of a top-down versus a bottom-up solution but you could almost think of it as a supply and demand side as well so like the way that I've thought about this is is there are organizations, and Tristan Harris is one, is, this is what, the one I mainly think of, is the, I think it's called the Center for Humane Technology, where he's working, like his team, part of what they do 
and I'm not familiar with all of the different things they have their hands in, but is trying to work with tech companies, to trying to get them to change their algorithms. So like when you go to a, watch a YouTube video on puppies, you don't end up watching, you know, Richard Spencer or something. Um, and so that, I think of that as sort of a supply side, uh, working on the supply side. The part with the Mill Institute is I think there's also what I think of as a demand side solution, which is fundamentally changing how we think when we're taking in information. Um, because a lot of that polarization is tied to oversimplified sort of outrage is fueled by oversimplification, right? And, and sort of binary thinking and, and, and certainty and things like that. And so there's, so there's work that can be done just in terms of on the demand side and how we're consuming. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not, I mean, it's obviously ambitious and ambitious isn't a heavy lift, but that, I guess that's how I think about that for, so for whatever that's worth. Um, questions, more questions? I don't wanna miss, sorry. Oh, yeah, Kalina. Thank you. Um, I had a question about family, but also kind of how you balance that with uh, taking a career risk. And I generally really admire people who are able to do really innovative things with their career and take a big risk like that and have it work out, um, whether that's like maybe freelance writing, for example. But how do you balance that with kind of having people that depend on you and having that responsibility to provide for them? And I was wondering, like, if you had any sort of more practical advice. Like, do you do anything to, I don't know, like cultivate an alternative income source or something like that? How do you, how do you say what you think while also being able to provide for your family? Um. That would be to me. Uh, well, when my daughter was little, she was born in 1989. I was in L.A. Um, it was a very rich time. There was a lot of money in journalism, and L.A. was a place that people wanted stories from. So I was fortunate that I was pretty much, I, I kind of, I read scripts when she was a baby. Like, I stayed home. I wanted to be with her, so that's like an alternative way. That's like, reading a script means like uh, somebody gives a script to like, Al Pacino, and you read it and say he should do this movie or not, so whatever. But, um, and I segued into doing some like assisting for someone, and then in journalism, and I never wasn't able to make a living at it until about 2009 when everything went down the crapper. But I kind of moved over to books and creating new media. Um, you have to, I, everybody is going to be different. I wanted to be home with my child. Um, and so I needed to figure out a way to make money and do that, and it, and it worked out. She can tell you a story, though, when I went off to my first big feature and went and interviewed the serial killer John Wayne Gacy on death row and was gone for two weeks. That was hard on a four-year-old, but, you know, you do what you have to do. In terms of alternative incomes, um, I, I can't answer that, but, gosh, there's so many ways now to make money and not leave home a lot different than it used to be in the 90s because of, of the internet. Um, I think for me, my desire to raise my child was sort of paramount, so I would have to work that to make it work around that. So, The only thing I would also add is that I don't know if, if you plan to be a writer or a journalist or if that's... It seems like a lot of people in this room have that sort of idea. I would just say that anybody going into that field needs alternate revenue streams. Yeah, like, like it's it's you you've got to diversify at this point. 
Yeah, it doesn't work. That's what I can say. I mean, no, I don't mean to be discouraging. I mean, I've been at this for 30 years, and I'm hustling harder now than I did when I was It's a lot 25. harder. It's a lot. I mean, we used it's, to make, you'd make $2 a word, and then they would pay all of your expenses when you wrote for Vanity Fair, or something like that. Those, that, that train is I mean, the people that you, you know, the, the people that you see in New York who are journalists who are living in fabulous brownstones in Brooklyn, they either have family money or they have a spouse who works on Wall Street or something like that. There's always a hidden source. So, I mean, honestly, I don't... Find somebody to marry who... No, I'm serious. I'm serious. No, Matt, I don't care. If you're a guy, you want to do it, find it. Find it. A wife or a partner who's going to work a corporate job. Most people I know that have, you know, that are they're steady in writing. They have somebody that can, that has a more lucrative and steady job, and has health insurance, and and has health insurance. It's no joke. But you also can make money on Substack. A little bit, and we doesn't pay, doesn't have health insurance. Substack is a winner-take-all proposition. I mean, let's face it. We all, we all, I write on Substack in our platform. Are you still, is your podcast still on Substack? Okay, okay. I just want to follow up. Like, Carlina, is part of what you're asking about kind of, what I understood part of what you were asking was about um, taking risks, and do you feel sort of more risk-averse if you have people depending on you? Is that part of what you were asking? I think it's the opposite. I think when you have someone depending on you, you got to make it work. So you're going to take risks. Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I'm just wondering, like, I think there's risks. I guess there's different kinds of risks, right? There's risks about, like, like making it work, so financially taking a risk. And then there's also risks, like, in terms of the edginess, like, in terms of all of the political stuff, the edginess of what you're willing to say. Um, I don't know if you had, like, was it both kind of risks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take intellectual risks. Yeah. Definitely. Always. Definitely. Remember that your name is on it. Like if you say, yeah. oh man, I got to support this kid, so I'm going to write about, you know, itch powder because, you know, it's going to be a steady income. Yeah, but then that's who you are. You're the itch powder. By the powder way, I would all. write about itch powder. <laughs> I wrote a lot I would about itch powder. 100% write about itch powder. Well, it used to pay really well. It did. Itch powder. Um, <laughs> I just, I just don't want anybody to think that you can get through a career in writing and just only write pieces that you want, like, you know, like, I, 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 wrote, there, I was living in New York, I had to pay my rent, I would have written for oh, anybody. That, that's true, I, when I was writing when she was little, I was writing any, writing for the LA Times, any gardening tools, I'll write and about it them, easier cameras, then, I'll write but about it was them. Also, they paid yeah, more Because they more paid than. well. But that doesn't, now I think those pieces don't, don't pay. Okay, but, I know, but, don't, but don't like be bullshitty because you think that that's a career move. I think that's the ultimate thing. I mean, if you stay true to your intellectual sensibility and you say what you want to say, that will always take you farther yes. than if you just BS your way through something. Yes. So just every, every step, every time, just ask yourself, am I saying the thing that feels urgent for me to say? And if the answer is yes, that's a risk worth taking. Yeah, and sorry, in the sweatshirt in front. Um, first, thank you all for your time. I was just going to ask, I'm curious, 
What do you guys think it means to be a feminine woman in 2023? A feminine woman? Yeah, like we talk about toxic masculinity. Ma masculinity. Um, what does it mean to be like a feminine woman? Not necessarily feminist, but just more women-y as opposed to more women-y. I, I don't know. I was just well, it's a good question. You know, um, I have thought that, um, you know, like the last 10 to 15 years about, have been about women, you know, pushing to the front. And they've taken on a lot of masculine attitudes, right? You know, a lot of shutdown. Not, not, not saying that's what you guys all do. I'm just saying there was a certain dominance hierarchy that women were trying to make their way in. And they've made a lot of, you know, headway. What I, what I like about myself as a woman is like that I do have a really strong nurturing streak that I'm deeply collaborative, that I listen a lot. You know, I mean, I'm starting to, like, a lot of times I sound a little bit like a gender essentialist, and this one gets mad at me because she, you know, you don't, I'm a little girlier than her. Um, all women, you know, it, the, the human complexity is infinite, right? And there's no one way of being a woman. But I do think that women have a lot of really incredible powers that we've sort of lost touch with in some ways. Um, and so, you know, to me, and, and I think also, by the way, I think sexual power is one of them. You know, I think like the erotic allure that women have is something that we've been deeply, like a, a, as a group, like conflicted about. But I think it's amazing that women have this power. There are women that could walk in here and then we'd all look at her. You know, it's like, it's incredible. Um, I'm 48, so. Uh, but, but like, it, what does it mean to be a woman? I don't know, help me out, ladies. So, well, just to be, he said, what does it mean to be a feminine yeah, woman? No, yeah, feminine. yeah, feminine woman. Well, I think there's, you know, there's a little bit because we keep seeing like, well, oh, you have to be more like a dude to do this thing. And now there's like the whole trad wife idea. You know, you're going to be more traditional. I think being a woman is obviously somewhat, subjective to the woman. I don't think there's a standard. I will tell you, my daughter can tell you, they call me Nancy Mommelman because I like to have people over and I like to cook for them and I like to, you know, keep my house nice and tidy, like sort of like womanly wifey arts. I like to look nice. I like my hair to look good. All of these things could be conceived as being kind of a feminine woman, but I, you know, I also want to act like a dude when I want to act like a dude. So, you know, I think it's up to the woman, I don't think that what I works for me is not going to be a role model for anybody else. Um, what do you think a feminine woman is like? Nice. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> no, but I, I actually, I am interested because, you know, you're of a different generation and we have seen like the trad wife thing. We've seen some pushback. What is there an idea of what maybe would be either ideal or interesting? Well, I'm obviously not a woman, so I... No, but what, what would your idea yeah, of one be? I, I think that's, that's difficult. Um, I think for a long time, there, I mean, not to be cliche, but there was somewhat of a patriarchy in, in the sense that much of society um, was 
out of bounds uh, for women, but I do think it's sort of gone to a point now where it's sort of the alternate extreme and then providing for someone, for example, as a man is now sometimes toxic. Um, as far as a women, a feminine woman, um, I think, I mean, <laughs> putting on the spot here, but um, I, I, I think there is something to the uh, nurturing and, and, and caring aspect. I was talking with someone the other day and they talked about, and I haven't done my own research, so of course do your own research, but that evolutionarily um, it was more important for women to be um, more sensitive to their surroundings because there was potentially more consequences if they, they did something that uh, society didn't like, whether that was the whole witchcraft thing, but also uh, for the male, the males were more physically dominant and could hurt them if they weren't well, Dude. they also just needed to be alert to their children. Yeah. Like they, exactly. The, 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 the hypervigilance and the neuroticism comes from having, you know, to care about a, a child and needing to have a sort of extra sense. Yeah. Right. That was a very, I think, important part of, of womanhood for so long. And it's just interesting. And I think it's important that we find a balance of how do we nurture uh, children as, as teams, as, as uh, couples, et cetera, so that we, because that's a, one of our most important jobs, right, as, as families is to provide for the next generation, but still also enable opportunities and enable that diversity of experiences and, and paths that I think is important for, a, um, for, for an organization and a society to really improve and progress and, and be interesting and, and livable. So yeah. I, don't, I don't really have as much, I haven't really thought deeply about it. I think, so. But I think what you're saying maybe a little bit is that, you know, traditional, traditional female roles were denigrated for a long time, maybe in service of women having opportunities that they want and should certainly have if they want them. But what was lost potentially because they were told they were not important. Like, it's not important if you raise your kids. Why should it be? You can have somebody else raise your kids. Well, what if I want to raise my kids? And maybe how does that maybe help the, the unit in general? And I don't think we should ever denigrate anybody for wanting to support their families. I think that's paramount for, for men and for women. Yeah, and I think it was just made maybe a little too simplistic as opposed to taking into consideration the depth and the nuance and complexity of like living in a family and, and how there are some differences between men and women generally. That doesn't mean all women are super feminine or all men are super masculine and that there is some gradient, but that generally speaking, there is some difference there and some value in there being difference, but not too extreme, right? Um, but some balance in, in between there. We have time for probably one more question just, before we wrap up. And there we go. He was handed the microphone. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, sitting here tonight, one thing that's striking is that you all have had, you know, quite long careers and contributed to many different facets of our culture. So I guess I'm just wondering what you're the most proud of of those and what you're looking forward to. The good capper. Thanks. Tonight is my biggest accomplishment. <laughs> um, I, I know for me, I'm most proud of the book that I wrote in 2015. Even though 
just writing a book, there's something about that. Um, uh, kind of wrestling those words onto the page and then they're there and they're, uh, even if they're, that medium is going away, it still feels very, um, you know, and, and what do I want to do? I think there's so much I want to do that I haven't done yet. I, mean, I haven't worked in film. I haven't worked in, you know, there's all sorts of sort of storytelling that I haven't gotten a chance to do. I got to do a, you know, she and I do a, a chatty podcast, which is great, but I did a narrative podcast that was incredibly hard, but fascinating. You know, storytelling is, is morphing so in, in fascinating ways and the gatekeepers are sort of gone. I don't know. All that's really fascinating to me. Um, I wrote for a long time for an alt weekly called the LA weekly, which was a really fabulous, fabulous paper. And, they allowed, it's really where I cut my teeth and made my career, and I was able to write eight, 10,000 word stories about, I could like sit in an old man SRO bar in, in uh, downtown LA and write 9,000 words and sort of cut a little window into the culture and tell other people's stories. And I call those stories like the stories I'll take in the coffin with me. They're just, they're just mean so much to me. Um, the book I worked on, To the Bridge, True Story of Motherhood and Murder, was very difficult to tell that story, to talk to people about the hardest thing that had ever happened in their lives and, and give it some context, but no sensationalism. I'm working on another project now where I hope to do the same thing. And I think it's sort of the honor to tell other people's stories, um, you know, to take the time to do it, to not tell your reader what to think, but give them enough information that they can sort of like fill it in between the lines and, and come with you uh, for a story that maybe they thought they would have no interest in whatsoever. But if you tell it to them right, they do. So, Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, I teach a lot. Um, <clears throat> I've taught graduate students and I teach adults. And, you know, this, this question constantly comes up as like, well, how can you make a living at this? How can you make this work? And I really feel like even though writing it hasn't made me rich, sometimes it doesn't even sustain me, but it has afforded me an interesting life. Like that's been the payment. I have been able to go places that I would never go. I've been able to travel places. I've been able to meet people and have conversations that I would never, ever have otherwise. And so, like, that's the compensation, in a way. I just have a very, uh, a very interesting life. I'm never bored. Never. So... That's amazing. So I want to just thank everyone for being here. I want to thank our guests. Thank you for thank traveling you. here. Thank Guys. you for being here. Thank you.